It's true we have a gentleman's agreement. But unfortunately, I am no gentleman. This is How Would Lubitsch Do It, a podcast in which we discuss the works of director Ernst Lubitsch, one film at a time. It's January 1919, and Fran Hoffner joins us today to discuss Meyer from Berlin. Come visit ErnstCast.com if you'd like show notes, resources as to where you might find the films we'll be discussing, or just to say hi. Hello, everyone. Welcome and welcome, Fran Hoffner. Do you want to tell our audience and myself, what do you do and what made you interested in coming on to a podcast episode for a director that's been dead for 75 years and moreover, one of his most obscure, only available on YouTube and potato quality movies? <laughs> well, thank you for having me. Yeah, I'm Fran Hoffner. I'm, I'm a writer and just about every regard, but I I do a lot of cultural criticism and pop cultural journalism. I've been a film critic with Brightwall Dark Room and The Wrap for a while and a film essayist. And, you know, I wanted to come onto this podcast. I'm, I'm sort of newly into Lubitsch, having worked my way through much of the filmography of Billy Wilder. And I think there kind of is no Billy Wilder without Ernst Lubitsch. And sometime around the holidays last year, I finally watched Shop Around the Corner, which was my first Lubitsch and maybe his most famous one in part because it inspired You've Got Mail so directly. And since then, I've, I've maintained a bit of a fascination that lay dormant while you know, exploring other directors' filmographies that have been long overlooked in my own viewing. But I was actually, at the time you reached out, I was in the midst of having just seen and working on an essay about Design for Living, a film that for years people told me I would love because of how funny and interesting and sexually revolutionary it was for its time. And it just made me really curious about more Lubitsch films. And as far as the obscurity of this one, I sometimes think the more obscure or unexpected, the better. I'm always happy to get out of my comfort zone with a viewing experience, especially older comedies, silent comedies. I was just really kind of compelled by it. And I remain compelled and baffled by it in equal measure. I'm really excited to talk about Meyer from Berlin. It's interesting kind of jumping then from the 30s and 40s. It's interesting seeing him kind of bash his style into being. Yeah. <laughs> it's fascinating how long it took uh, Lubitsch to form that kind of ineffable tragicomic style that we all associate with him. You know, the touch. And this is a film that I think, um, you know, might be lacking in some of those <laughs> some of those areas. So Meyer from Berlin, basically, I mean, let, let, let's be real here. It's the Adam Sandler holiday film of the Lubitsch retrospective. You know, it's a film in which our favorite character ever, Sally, now named Sally Meyer. We've seen this character before in Shoe Palace Pincus, in which uh, Lubitsch played Sally Pincus, a shoe entrepreneur. Uh, in this one, there's no more shoes, but he is now a city slicker from Berlin. Very similar character, a very lecherous character, who goes on a hiking trip to the Bavarian Alps to regain his health. And hijinks ensue as he is a sex pest. Watching this film... I thought back to a text message I got from a friend probably a decade ago who was reading the first novel by a novelist that she and I both really enjoy. She texted me in all caps, like late in the middle of the night, like, 
I'm reading so-and-so's first novel and it sucks with a bunch of (laughs) exclamation points. And I think it was this kind of cathartic realization for me at the time being a young artist being like, oh, the first thing you do and make or even the first couple of things, even if you have the money and the financing or then the publishing rights or whatever the medium is, it might be really bad, especially compared to what's to come. I don't know if I think Meyer from Berlin is really bad, but I thought it was illuminating and cathartic and refreshing to see something that's just not there yet in terms of Lubitsch's style and sense of humor. He's playing really broad and obvious and a character that I think embodies a lot of like internalized, perhaps anti-Semitism in Lubitsch. I don't know. It's great to, to see him knowing that he manages to reel it all back in and to at some point get to a point that's quite artful and beautiful in his later comedies. But there's plenty to admire about this film, especially in it's just like production design and that they were shooting, if not in the Alps, then on mountainsides or out, out in the wilderness. Like I was quite stunned, I think by the quality of its production. Yeah. It's, it's interesting because the controversy around the Sally and kind of this archetype that Lubitsch played repeatedly. Um, if any listeners want to hear a kind of conversation about that and haven't yet, Dara Jaffe and I went pretty deep on this in episode two. Uh, it, it's still a matter of, of significant debate. You know, this question of, you know, is this character, as Lubitsch would put it, kind of a, he would say a Jewish in-joke, he would call it ethnic humor, right? Or can it be viewed through that, you know, lens of anti-Semitism and that's still highly unresolved, Not not something I, I'm probably personally qualified to, to draw conclusions on, neither historically or experience-wise. It was sort of compelling just as a Jewish person, because I had seen some reviews be like, very anti-Semitic, this is anti-Semitic. I was kind of familiar with the Sally Meyer character mm-hmm. as this like anti-Semitic stereotype. I have to imagine there are other Meyer films that are maybe engaging more in like the urban life of a Jewish guy in Berlin. But mm-hmm. this... I don't know if this struck me as any more anti-Semitic than it is just like this character's a lech. I don't really see it as tied to his Judaism necessarily, other than perhaps Lubitsch looked like kind of an ethnic stereotype of a Jewish man. I don't know if I particularly think so, but I, I don't know who was saying what at the time. I just think, you know, even in reading about like contemporary anti-Semitism, like the issues with that come with like issues of privilege and whiteness and it's clear to me regardless of that this character is someone who like gets away with stuff the, the first time we've seen this kind of archetype was actually in where's my treasure or where now he's dead two different titles in which lubich plays pretty much this character except his name is ernst lubich inside the movie he's actually playing a character named mm. after himself and it's kind of interesting trying to kind of suss out okay who is this comic persona and how does it differ from Ernst Lubitsch the person too because one kind of refrain I found throughout this is 100 years ago 103 years ago when this film was made there was that kind of archetype of you know the the man of the house who especially you know like you know you see in the, at the beginning harassing his his assistant or his his maid and yet how much of that feels personal for Lubitsch in the sense of Simon Lubitsch's father was apparently in this general genre of behavior <laughs> Mm-hmm. Uh, in a way that Lubitsch, uh, as far as we know, never was. So I, I always wonder how much he's kind of taking cues from that in these roles and how much of it is just the expectations of what this kind of satirical persona would entail circa 1919 in this case. Yeah, I'm curious to know who is supposed to be laughing at this. Like, is this punching mm-hmm. up or is this punching down? Are his friends 
amused by this? I have to imagine so. I don't know that he would go so far to be so goofy and debase himself as such if this wasn't making, you know, his peers, especially the Jewish ones, also laugh. But it's it's genuinely hard to say if this is like an act of, I want to say like not necessarily business desperation, whatever it is to get himself off the ground into the film world. So hopefully he can do something a little less base. I think you see this with filmmakers all the time now, Take especially in comedy. You see like, really great comedy directors and writers doing punch-ups or directing gigs on movies that are terrible and broad and disgusting and gross in order to hopefully one day get the the money to do something better. But I, I wonder to what extent this is like an organic creation versus a business necessity. Uh, at the time, too, before he truly became a big deal internationally for his historical epics, this character was his kind of calling card. He was most famous as an actor playing uh, the Sally archetype. So that's very interesting to think of the the turn he took where his brand, you know, at, you know 10 years later, this his brand was the lightest touch, the, you know, the, the champagne fizziness, <laughs> which is incredibly absent here uh in this broadness of this of this yeah this very base archetypical character it feels i mean it also it feels like sandler in that sense where it's like you go to an adam sandler movie you or you, you, you pull one up on his netflix deal or something you know what you're getting and for the fans of sally this is this is expected yeah, it's like going on vacation with your favorite, you know, comic character, right? It's interesting because I think this is one of the films I was most at a loss as, as to as to what to latch onto here. Hmm. Even by the standards of his films at this time, it's a very simple film, right? It's yeah. it's a city slicker plays hooky so he can get away from his wife and go one on a mountaineering trip that he is horribly underprepared for and two chase especially this one uh, society lady in particular mm-hmm. that he latches onto who keeps him around as more of a amusement and to ward off the other in her mind more seriously dangerous man you know i thought a lot about hotel culture as kind of a thing of the past it's funny that we have the success of something like the white lotus which is kind of about what a lot of older films and television shows were about, which is like the hotel as this like big social place and also this social leveling ground, so to speak, that this is where you met people both within your bubble, outside your bubble. Now I think of hotels as like quite separated and stale to some extent. Mm -hmm. Like I don't, I don't know who's sitting with or who's staying on the same floor as me. And I'm not talking to people I don't know at the Continental Breakfast. That's not why I'm there. But it used to be this really social action. And I think of like the livelihood of the dining room in the hotel, not only for Sally, but for everyone else there. And I was like, we really don't have a thing like this anymore. All of which I think also like plays into, I think, some facet of Jewish culture and like you know, the nature of like mm. what the Catskills were in the 50s and 60s. Obviously, that comes later. But I thought a lot about that while watching. The Catskills became this like vacation haven for Jews in the post-World War II era where people would come up and I'll stay at these certain hotels or cabins and rent them all together. You know, like Dirty Dancing is essentially set in one of these like mm-hmm. Catskills resorts. And they were also always like filled with their own entertainment, their own music, their own comedians. You hear about like Borscht Belt, Catskill style Jewish comedians being these really hokey, obvious, 
broad comedians. I think the best example of this, if you've seen Wet Hot American Summer, Michael Showalter doing comedy at the talent show towards the end of the film is kind of like the most base obvious version of that. And I think one of the funniest parts of that movie, but I almost think of Lubitsch as one of these like proto Catskills Jewish comedians. I mean, I think this is the last kind of hurrah of at least as far as surviving films, everything I have to ask risk of like, there's like the 20 films that we don't have. Um, this is the last hurrah of that specific vein of humor in his films. I think it's also no coincidence that this is the last time he would play this character and last time this character would appear in his work at all. There's a gap between this humor here and everything he did after this that I, I wonder what, what happened to that? Like, is, is it something where he was in a rush to move away from it? I, I was curious about that too. And just like, why, why hang up this character? Perhaps besides the obvious reason of not that funny, not that compelling, not that smart not that formally interesting but if this is a character he was like i'm sick of doing this i don't want to do this anymore this is obvious or if because greater opportunities got in the way of this i mean within nine months uh, madame duberry had come out and his, his career is never the same so i think uh, he had the full uh, ability to to say goodbye to anything he didn't want to do from then on you've seen i think more of lubitsch's work than i at this point what is your impression of him as an actor and as a performer. I found that very <laughs> compelling and frustrating at times. Well, I'll, I'll keep my thoughts short because I'm much more interested in your thoughts on that. Oh, because, okay. Um, <laughs> Fair enough. Because having now seen all of Lubitsch's extant performances, of which there are four, I don't think he was ever a great actor. <laughs> and mm. I think that his films noticeably improved when he found people to even when he's not going for that, our favorite, you know, champagne fizziness, people who could at least play the broad with more dexterity, like someone like Ossia Oswalda in I Don't Want to Be a Man, which she plays the Lubitsch type in terms of tone, but shades it with so much more more of a character you can grab onto and more like genuine irreverence. You, you root for her because she's actually fighting against something. Oswalda is so good at playing that. She's so good at playing someone who's simultaneously extremely immature, but also kind of a bit smarter than everyone else in the room. And I don't get that shading from Lubitsch, even in his, I think his best role is in Sumerun. He's still, again, one of the weaker performances in that film. He, he was so interesting to watch i mean i also don't think he's a particularly good actor he's you know he's mugging he's really playing <laughs> it made me sort of wonder about his directing style with actors later on if he mm -hmm. gains a sort of subtlety when he's behind the camera or on the flip side like a kind of offhand approach that allows people who are geniuses to just be geniuses i i i found myself so curious to know whether this kind of hamminess gets transposed behind the scenes or if it's just a matter of maturity if it's just someone who gets tired of playing big and broad and dumb it's interesting seeing that kind of slowly at least as far as Lubitsch goes evolve where i mean two years after this you have someone like um henny porton playing in the case a dual role actually she's incredible in, in cole heisey's daughters and there's so much more nuance there and she's not playing to the cheap seats i tie so much of what went on in early silent cinema to what was going on in theater stages, right? Mm. Because uh, there's no such thing as a close-up on a theater stage. Yeah, totally. Your performance gets communicated, not by hand-waving like I'm doing off-camera right now, but mm. uh, your, your performance gets communicated with these big, broad strokes by necessity. And, I mean, the camera follows suit, right? I mean, so much of this film. There's, like, how many close-ups are in this movie? There's probably single digits. So it all feels very tailored to that large hand-type performance. I admire it, if only because I think now... 
sometimes films that should play broad and big feel too low energy. I'm sort of like, well, you know, you brought a real sense of spirit to this. You got to give it up. Congrats to anyone who wrote a book, <laughs> Heidi Montag tweet or whatever. But it does feel like, an, you know, a real overbearingness on this film, which is otherwise, I think I was remarking to my partner like stretching to hit that like 57 minute arc in terms of plot and yet it seems in such a rush to get out um there is a mm-hmm. I, I truly don't know whether this is a byproduct of the ends of reels you know mm-hmm. being the most damaged but there's a habit of lubitsch films in this period of just ending abruptly five frames after the conflict is resolved it's end and i mean in madame dewberry they lost the ending for example so i always wonder like was there another shot in there but it's so languorous this film other than the ending I mean, I got to say, I admire a quick ending. Now, now I think also we suffer from like giving a movie like six endings. But um, it was funny to see like, I mean, I think even in the indulgence of the character, there is a brevity and a lightness in touch with like the edit. It is languorous at times, but I don't think you're ever like sitting in one particular scene too long, which is often an issue with comedy is knowing when to get out on the mm-hmm. laugh. I think he's doing that on like a moment to moment basis pretty well. It's just that there's not that much going on. There's no kind of complexity to the humor where you have moments where there is a single joke and then there is a break and then there is another joke <laughs> instead of mm-hmm. this kind of interweaving of of tones. There are some I think fun one-liners in this. Like, I mean, most of them I think are unfortunately tied to his lechery, but sometimes his lechery is delivered in an amusing way. I, I, I quite liked the exchange in, in, in the train carriage where it's this is a lady's car. Well, that's why I came in. I thought, oh, that's that's interestingly fun and transgressive. Yeah, those those girlies love it. They're really yeah. having a laugh about it. That's sort of the <laughs> thing about his lechery is like he is quite lecherous, but it does seem like at least some of the time it's working. He's weirdly rakish yeah. in that way. Yeah, and, and there's that mixed signal in this where he seems to be diegetically attractive, even though there are absurd number of moments when he is the largest pig in the world. Mm-hmm. It almost feels like that same logic of like, I mean, I mean, we could tie it to like the Rob Schneiders, Adam Sandlers of the world, where they are simultaneously, or even like Groucho Marx, actually, where it's simultaneously a repellent archetype who is just the magnet of all women yeah. in this case. I work part-time at Gawker and we just did this big comedy week and our writer, Sarah Hagee, talked to Broti Gupta and Dylan Galula, two comedians I think are so funny. And they talk a lot about Rodney Dangerfield, not getting any respect from his wife aspect of Dangerfield's comedy. And they, they brought up something that they sort of jokingly, but I think also quite astutely called like the Dangerfield paradox, which is that like so much of his comedy is about this complicated relationship between his wife. But they're like, if you're Dangerfield's wife, you probably have a great time. You're laughing so much. He's so funny. Um, <laughs> like, how do you not sort of love being an object in that way? The way that the relationships bet- between the genders in this film manifests is, does back that up where it, it's not Lubitsch uh, or Sally chasing Kitty that brings them together or forces them to be together. She is choosing to spend her time with this uh, pest of a man for her own reasons. It is her agency that keeps the plot going, at least. Um, There's never a sense that she is like this fool who's getting the wool pulled over her eyes. She's always two steps ahead of Sally. So there, there at least is that dynamic that I think is, you know, it, it's still it's still a film about a sex best. But the best way to put this is I think that Kitty comes across quite well. 
Yeah, totally. She seems to more than welcome it. We don't really know why she would welcome it versus Mm -hmm. not. To ward off the flocks of suitors. Yeah, I suppose to set up to, yeah, to have him be a line of defense. Yeah, she certainly comes off well. I think, you know, that's it. But that's also like, you know, that character could be anything. The fact Mm -hmm. that we even get to like see her write letters feels like almost like unearned depth. In this case, <laughs> I, I'd forgotten about the, the fact that we, we we see her letter writing and she has her own full side plot with her husband, Harry. But she doesn't even seem it's not like she hates Harry. It's she's just happy to take on any external attention where it can be found to that kind of flock of suitors. It's an interesting kind of through line we can see between this film and other films of this. I mean, I think all of Lubitsch's movies is that he loves arranging groups of mostly men and women one at a time uh, as single entities. So there's this quite fun scene where uh, Kitty is kind of being basically chased by six or seven identically dressed, identical looking guys. These like evening coats, I think. That kind of arrangement of of people is something that we're, we're going to see exploded in the next in the next film. But um, it's interesting to see it kind of here in, very, in, a, in a very small scale to at least highlight Kitty and Sally's individuality against these uh, against these flocks. To the way this film feels kind of half formed, I think it's also important to keep in mind that you know this is one of what four yeah four films from the year 1919 <laughs> mm-hmm. that survive. Even there's more that don't survive. I think this is probably the weakest of the four. This whole kind of era of his career, he hadn't quite settled upon that specific tone that he would you know used to such great effect in his hollywood films where you can't really say whether they're a comedy or a drama they're a little bit of both they have this mastery of tone to them but that still left room for him to do some incredible broad comedies and the oyster princess is like the best version of that where it's it's a film that pulsates with this rhythm i mean half the film is a dance scene again very broad satire of in this case american uh, industrialists, uh, but it's a grand satire where uh, everyone is just playing Looney Tunes characters, and the form of the film starts to actually keep up. Where you know the pace of the edits, the the rhythm, the use of split screen is just off the charts. It's incredible. But in this case, it's 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 really wild to see this right. You know, six months earlier. I was thinking about what is effectively funny here, mm. and you mentioned a bit like the dichotomy between. Sally and some of the other men at the hotel. And I think this is putting a lot of stock and not incorrectly, (laughs) I'll say, on how funny it is to be in one of those little Bavarian outfits, as well as burdened with rope, that he just looks like a different guy from all of those guys. It has a kind of Mr. Bean effect in a way where like Mm -hmm. no matter where Mr. Bean is, you're going to pull you're going to be able to find him in a crowd because he always looks different. It's a, it's a very obvious laugh point, but it's an effective one, too, that he's always overburdened. He's never wearing the right thing. You know, when, like, the sad clown kind of emerges, that often winds up being its most effective comedic point, which is so simple and not very, you know, narratively complex or comedically complex. But, it, you know, it's sometimes effective. You, you never sympathize with him, I think. But no, the film does carries you along with this person who has clearly ignorant of any culture outside of his own and even when it comes to you know somewhere that is 100 miles away not even you know it's not not a big lift for him he goes and assumes that this community is going to be this like rustic place where you know you wear lederhosen and a, mm-hmm. and a giant the biggest feather in world history in your cap and you fit in when you know he, he goes there and it's just a bunch of like kind of urbane society people all over again he is in his day-to-day life 
probably pretty similar to those people, but because he has made himself a fish out of water because of his ignorance, he sticks out like a sore thumb. Yeah, absolutely. The way that this film interfaces with the kind of reality of of Sally is interesting, too, where there's a kind of repeated refrain in the film where he'll do something that is clearly outside of the diegetic reality. Like, for example, when the doctor finally prescribes the trip, right, Mm -hmm. to, to the mountains, Sally is, you know, playing sick the whole time, but then immediately... He jumps out of his bed Mm -hmm. (laughs) and goes, yes, I agree with the doctor, right? You know, I mean, let's take that moment seriously as a piece of constructed reality. His wife would immediately go, whoa, this is ridiculous. You're not sick at all. You're jumping out of bed. But she doesn't notice. And it isn't kind of played as she somehow missed it. It, It's played as almost this extra diegetic thing, right? It's this uh, action that exists kind of outside the world of the fiction of the movie. I found that interesting how it Sally as a character in all these films, but I think especially this one kind of exists both diegetically and outside of outside of the world of the film simultaneously. Yeah, well put. I thought initially, I have like an extremely elementary ability to like read German. I often cannot understand it when spoken to me and I'm I'm miserable at speaking it, but I'm an okay reader of it. So it was fun to kind of try to keep up with the subtitles and the labeling. But initially upon starting the film, when it's about, you know, Sally's sickness or lack thereof, when his wife is giving him, I think it's like ricinous oil. I don't know why. I thought she was dosing him with ricin. And I was like, okay, he's escaping his wife who's actively poisoning him and killing him. So this is like, so Sally is a victim of of like a harpy wife who wants him dead and only looked up later that this is sort of like the formal name for what we consider to be castor oil. We couldn't have that. Then the film would have stakes. I know. I know. But I was like, wow, this is like kind of dark, like escaping your wife who wants who wants you dead. And I can't wait to learn what he did. This does get at something about this, uh, this era that I've has been on and off a struggle, which is that one, I don't speak German. I've been, I've, I've picked up a few words over the past three months, but uh, just purely due to osmosis, but I cannot speak it. I'm no faculty. Two, uh, a lot of these translations are terrible. A lot mm. of the versions um, for Carmen, actually, I had to use like the Google Lens feature on my phone and take photos of every title card and auto translate, which oh, led to wow. some very funny moments. And so it, it can be really hard to. And, and even then, so much of this comedy, especially this movie, more than all the others, is steeped in specific hundred year old German cu- cultural customs. Like, I bet this one would be funnier if I had spent a decade in like Bavaria in the 1910s. I guess it wouldn't be funny because I'd have to suffer through the war but you know anyway yeah <laughs> um the you know if i'd been outside of that or just experienced that in a, in a perfect world and and so it can be so difficult to fully interface with what this film is getting at like who is this you know it's what you said right it's who is this film for who is it satirizing and what societal purpose and i don't mean like message type i mean just what what need is this film filling it can be tough to empathize with that 103 years later at least with like the Sandler ones, the, they're often so dense with his friends and comedic partners mm-hmm. that you're able to kind of get a justification just out of volume of who's on screen. So it's not like this one guy has to get away. It's all these guys have to get away or all these guys have to, you know, go to the Wild West and do Wild West stuff. But when it's just one guy, when it's a, a cast and a plot that's so narrow and so simple, it does get to be like, what is the point? But the form, I I mean, yeah, the form is still expanding. No one had ever seen a guy fake sick and go to the mountains before 1919. (laughs) Maybe they had, but that's sort of what it feels like. Like, I guess we have to get this out of the way. 
I have a similar feeling actually to his biggest star epics. I actually just recently had the largest crisis of enthusiasm for this whole project I've had so far. It was mm-hmm. going to happen. And I think I think I'm over it. I, I, I watched Madame Dewberry, Sumeroon and Anna Boleyn in a row. And they are all, in my opinion, fairly turgid historical biopics, right? Mm-hmm. Well, like it's Sumeroon's a, a legend. It's it's Arabian Nights, but it's it's still turgid. And I was like, oh, my God, have I lost the, the plot here? This is boring as shit. And it's the same struggle, though. These films were all hits, especially Madame Dewberry. That was that made his career. Yet I watched them and I'm like, this film does nothing for me. But if you cast your mind back to you know, 1919, 1920, you know, these films, no one had seen anything like them. No one had seen a biopic about Madame Dewberry before done with all the lushness and everything. It's just that 2022, this film does not have a need it is serving in the same way as, you know, like the Oyster Princess, which is hilarious. Yeah, now we're so we're so rich in films good, bad, thin, thick that this feels just truly, you know, we've we've lived through several ebbs and flows of dudes rock, especially ones where it's like dudes rock actually in parentheses and dudes rock not actually in parentheses. <laughs> I wonder if, you know, in if I when I rewatch all these movies in like 20 or 30 years or whatever. Uh, whether certain films will come around to feeling relevant again when they aren't. Who knows? It's hard to say. I was looking forward to this one because in the Scott Amon book, he cites it as, this is a bright point in this era. And I wonder just, oh, does it flourish on like 35 mil lovingly? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) You know, because I mean, the the version we have watched, I I will say, uh, is potato quality. It is YouTube. uh, And that's the best version of it. I mean, YouTube is a, such a profoundly strange platform, but that you can find. I mean, I watch Design for Living on YouTube, mm-hmm. not in amazing quality, slightly sped up, which was sort of hilarious. It's amazing to me that you can have people who like make millions of dollars like decorating cupcakes. And you can also have an extremely unofficial library of one of the most important filmmakers, essentially side by side. Yeah, it's it's it's, it's interesting where on, on the, even the website for this podcast where I've tried to link all the public domain works, almost everything is on YouTube. Yeah, I don't think I, this project would work without YouTube. And yet it's so tenuous, right? All those could be taken down tomorrow. I don't know. I grew up like using like mega video to watch stuff like in the UK. And so I'll take kind of anything of any quality. I want to take a detour to talk about the film's form. Mm. because um, there's a couple of specific things that I, I found very interesting. One is the day for night that I don't know if, if you had the same struggle that I did in the film's climax, where in the cabin, it is impossible to figure out when the film was taking place because mm. when Lubitsch and Kitty are in the cabin, it is clearly night. Night has fallen. They're trying to go to sleep. Mm-hmm. And yet, uh, without any assistance from light sources, Lubitsch's wife and Harry are making their way up the trail and Mm -hmm. it is clearly photographed during the day and it got me thinking what time is it and then that got me thinking about the contract with the audience that is cinematic night right where Mm -hmm. day for night is just it's the thing you do in the 1910s 1920s and up to today I mean, look at Nope. It's the thing you do when you want to shoot wide shots outdoors uh, and make it look like night. It never is convincing on a objective, like, does this actually look like moonlight level? But what it does is it interfaces with audiences understanding of what dark is. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of a, it's kind of a contract, right? It's a suspension of disbelief. And a film like this 
goes so far beyond that. So you have both nonsensical night diegetically, and also I always suspect that when day for night doesn't work in a film of this vintage, it's because this is an untinted copy. This version we're watching is black and white, and I wonder if this was intended to have had, for example, a dark, deep blue tint, which you can see in something like Rosita uh, during mm. the nighttime scenes, and whether that would have paved it over. Anyways, that was one interesting formal quirk of the film where I think, okay, is this a, a matter of the copy we're watching? Or is it a matter of the film just, you know, circa 1919 had Lubitsch and Theodore Sparkle, had they cracked the code of night yet, like Lubitsch had clearly done circa Rosita? Or was it just a case of the audiences at that point, it's almost like video game night, right? Where it's just something that you don't think about too much. Yeah. I have to admit that's where I kind of came into it where if I see someone lying down in a bed and putting their covers on, it could be lit in any possible way. I think they're going to bed mm -hmm. and I'm willing to kind of step into that, that world of disbelief at times it got, it got hard to kind of remember how much time had passed and was passing. It's like all kind of over a weekend essentially is what it seems. I think that's another ways in which like the score, you know, the score is certainly helping the film feel more robust in a sensory way but i think the relative monotony of the score although music i certainly enjoyed makes it really hard to determine pacing it's all moving mm -hmm. more or less at the same tempo and it's hard to ascribe okay this is hours later this is days later it also kind of harps on the same central comedic theme throughout most of it and mm -hmm. i quite like the theme i think it's a fun melody i, I it got stuck in my head all last night after we watched this but it, it does it, it, it does kind of make all the moments blend together when there's no dynamics in either the pacing or the melody um yeah although absolutely far from the worst unfortunately my favorite film from this whole era which is the doll uh, has by a wide margin the worst score. <laughs> so, um, I, I had to throw on some Mozart while watching that. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's. I, I suppose I could have, like, picked, picked my own as well. I mean, I'm a huge fan of, like, loose kind of, like, vaudeville jazz piano or ragtime piano, which I think gets derided a lot as, like, quite annoying, like, ice cream truck-style music. I find it really pleasant incidental music, but... What's engaging about that type of music, I think, in played experience and a live experience is that it plays quite fast and loose with its tempo mm -hmm. in a way that allows it to become surprising. But when it's set to something that has as rigorous kind of a scene to scene rhythm, then it's it's hard to actually be having fun with the form as I otherwise would. It's interesting the way that all these elements that the filmmakers could have no control over because we're watching it 100 years later play into our experiences, right? Like, imagine if we had watched this with, like, the greatest Carl Davis score ever. Like, if, imagine if Carl Davis had gone, like, this is my life's work, this score. I'm mm -hmm. going to make this the greatest masterpiece ever. Would we like it more? Who knows? One other element that stuck to me was the... Um, Classical continuity, you know, the idea of, okay, especially the Hollywood idea that most of pop cinema nowadays is based off of and has been for, you know, decades and decades. You know, it was still in, and Lubitsch being one of the chief architects of that when he went over to Hollywood. At this point, you know, we can see that it's still in, I don't want to say it's in his infancy because it implies, a you know, an inevitability to it. But mm -hmm. Lubitsch is working in a, in a different world here. And I found it interesting how in this film that also applied to the kind of the lack of continuity applies to kind of the way that spaces are linked together. I, I want to ask you, if you were asked to draw a layout of the hotel, 
(laughs) Could you? Almost certainly not. And I'm also coming at this from a disadvantage of struggling with that to begin with. Like, I don't know that I could draw my own apartment if given. Did you notice the weirdness of the hallway that leads into his apartment or not his apartment, his hotel room? How it's impossible physically? No, I didn't. If you look at whenever Sally opens his hotel room door, there is a wall on the backside. Uh, mm-hmm. You can see that there is a corridor looking thing. Uh, and then if you you see the reverse, where that corridor was is gone. And there has been replaced on the other side, another corridor leading out to a hotel lobby that does not match what we saw. Mm-hmm. And again, I'm not going to be like movie mistakes, cinema sins. But I find interesting how, I mean, one, I think Kurt Richard did not work on this film, his kind of usual production designer. So I wonder if you would have caught that. But two, um, I do think it speaks to a the fast and loose way uh, this film and this era of films for Lubitsch plays with continuity where the, again, the contract, the suspension of disbelief was not the same as it would have been five years later. And I found that fascinating how, oh, th- this is just okay. It's, it's you know, it's it doesn't call attention to itself. I, I don't want to room 237 this hotel or like, you know, uh, <laughs> yeah. oh, this, this hallway doesn't lead. So therefore it's about the moon landing. I don't know. The seams were more interesting to me in a lot of ways than the text. You know, even the axial cutting of this film where the camera will cut in on the same axis, uh, the way that the, the hotel is laid out in a patently nonsensical way, the way that day for night it doesn't be Behave the way we've been taught. And even like the way that the mountain summit is clearly a tiny outcropping that they shot upwards at. It gives it this small handmade quality. This is where I often struggle with silent films, not because it takes necessarily more patience to watch, but the cutting between the scene and the dialogue when I'm like, I'm really just trying to look at how a scene is laid out, how it's presented. And that back and forth will sometimes disrupt my focus. So something like noticing that like a hallway does not exactly line up with like the physics of a room. It's like I'm my eyes are pulled in so many different directions that I'm often incapable of narrowing focus in in such a way. And that's something that I think is also a side effect of, you know, silent film viewing is just not making up a significant fraction of my viewing experience. And I think, you know, the more that I continue to explore and watch, the easier it becomes to understand how to view it in the medium I would any other film. But yeah. But for me, kind of the the simultaneous challenge and interest of silent films goes even deeper, too, where it's because there wasn't such a rigorously adhered to standard of representation that the breadth, the standard deviation of what you see in mainstream silent films is absolutely wild. there, There was no common language at this point. Uh, or at least mm-hmm. much less of one. So when you watch a film like this, it, it's it's almost like watching a film from a different era than yeah. what the, the Americans were doing. This I'm, I'm amazed we've managed to wring so much discussion out of this film <laughs> because it is it was what like my notes on like Madame Dewberry are like five pages. My notes on this were like a leaflet. Are there any kind of moments or films that Lubitsch has done that stick in your mind as like definitive of him as an artist? I'm curious about your own experience with his cinema and what sticks out to you as, oh, this got me. You know, I think one of the things I so admire about his touch, and I recognize that he's not really necessarily writing a lot of the Golden Age films, but as comedies, I really appreciate how not didactic they are and how otherwise specific they remain they don't become this like universal diatribe on 
ideas of love or how relationships work. Um, Design for Living, I think, being just an amazing, like, quintessential example. Obviously, that's an adaptation of this, like, Noel Coward play, though I they futz with it way more than Coward would have wanted them to. But, I mean, that film and that story is about those three specific people making their very relatively unorthodox relationship work for them without saying, like, this is how you should solve your problems or this would work for everyone. But these characters feel so specifically rooted in this three-person relationship and in these dynamics of affection with each other that you do find yourself rooting essentially for this throuple, whether or not you want to be. And I think there's such a deftness in that that I really admire. So it's incredible to see him working from this, like, broad easy perspective early on. I don't think Sally Meyer is supposed to be an archetype necessarily, but I think he's funny because we know guys who are sex pests and guys who are opportunists or are louches or anything like that. And we are supposed to kind of reflect that character onto our lived society. Whereas by later on, we can really indulge in characters that do feel like generated for entertainment that are not perhaps wholly representative of any particular aspect of society i think that's just something i admire in filmmaking in general is not being told that this is necessarily a reflection of life now or relationships now or philosophy now but allowing me to draw what i want based on hyper specific characterization and plotting his films aren't prescriptive in that way and and they're not moralizing they're not judgmental of basically anyone except the Nazis. And I think that also leads us to a film like Mar from Berlin, where uh, he is not judgmental of a character who is uh, kind of intolerable to be around. Totally. <laughs> uh, so there's a, there's a bit of a tension there for me where I admire the lack of judgment, but I'm also like, do we really, do we really need to spend an hour not judging this guy? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I suppose it'd be maybe a little more fun if he like got what he was co- what was coming for him at the end, but comeuppance with these characters is actually never as enjoyable as like watching them get away with it. It's kind of like a roadrunner, mm-hmm. Looney Tunes kind of thing where it's like we want these guys to get away. They're little stinkers. What's the fun if they get caught or reprimanded or any of that? I think that this little stinker archetype, though, would be better played by other people. Mm, mm-hmm. I mean, Ozzy Oswald is such a good little stinker. She is amazing. I also think it's it's worth noting, too, how young he was when he made this. He was, I believe, 26 at the time, maybe even 25. And as Will in the first episode said, um, he doesn't look a day over 40. I was going to very generously guess like 35 or 36. It's it's weird thinking that the person I'm seeing on screen is like measurably younger than myself. Yeah. I mean, yeah, they didn't have like retinol, hyaluronic acid <laughs> back then. So it's not it's not his fault. It, it is interesting, though, because at this point, Anna Lubitsch had recently died, which is uh, Ernst Lubitsch's mother. And Simon Lubitsch kind of became Ernst's responsibility. And uh, at this point, he was basically Ernst was supporting his entire extended family, sister, brothers, father with his work. And, and so he was in this incredible. This is one of the most stressful, nerve wracking times of his whole life. Right. It's right after the. The, the Great War had ended and there was immense impoverishment everywhere. So kind of uh, Lubitsch was the one, or Ernst in this context, was the one with the finger in the dam of his whole family's survival. Mm. Putting kind of like such a jaunty bourgeois film in that context. Mm-hmm. The, the gap between the character that he plays here and who the real person was, you know, kind of uh, working still basically two jobs to and making a half dozen films a year to make ends meet. I mean, it's really incredible and it's hard to 
come to terms with how incredible making something like this was for the time being with also how poorly it's staged and also just not great <laughs> that it is <laughs> but you know i you know congrats to anyone who wrote a book etc <laughs> yeah you, you do gotta hand it to ernst mm-hmm. so fran is there any place that our listeners can find your work anything you'd like to plug uh have at it yeah, um, I always like to plug the amazing work that happens at Brightwall Dark Room, where I sometimes write and sometimes I edit, but most of the time I'm just reading a lot of amazing essays on film. And then I'll also plug, I have a Substack called Fran Magazine, where we're just always having a nice time on there, and it'll be a year old by the time this airs, which is exciting, and I'm looking forward to what's to come with that project as well. Thank you so much for uh, joining me on this episode. Oh, absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. Next week, it's our season finale, and Brem Reuter joins us to discuss The Oyster Princess. Head over to www.ernstcast.com for the links to the various public domain films we'll be discussing this season and other resources such as show notes. How Would Lubitsch Do It is a production of Moving Image Agency. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review us on whatever podcast service you happen to use. We'd like to acknowledge that this podcast was produced on the unceded territory of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples. 